There are two questions that I get all the time from real estate investors. The first one is, how do I find deals or how do I find more deals? The second one is, how do I get funding for those deals? Well, I've got you covered. I've created a program that will help you find all the deals you could ever want and also how to fund all of those deals. It's called the Real Estate Find and Fund Blueprint. That's right, it's a blueprint that will teach you how to find those deals and how to get them all funded. If you go to findandfundblueprint.com, you can check out the details, you can get signed up. It's a four week program. I have designed it specifically to make sure that you leave that program with 100% confidence that you can find deals and get them all funded. It's by far the biggest problem that real estate investors have and they've always had this problem and I'm here to solve it for you. I wanna get right down into it. We're gonna get into the weeds and talk very, very specific about finding deals and getting them funded. Go check it out findandfundblueprint.com. I can't wait to see you. Who, who's everyone looking up to here? Who are the people that are walking around? I worked at a big bank and, and you knew who were, the, who were like the influencers were before we even had that word. And as I sat back and I looked at them, what is it about that individual? And what I came to find out, that individual did not go to Harvard. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your time and attention. And uh, I always, always try to bring on the very best people to talk about the most important things and really try to help you take your business to the next level or get it off the ground if that's where you are, just in that beginning phase. And today is no exception, guys. I have uh, an incredibly effective and smart and just full of experience gentleman who has, he worked for the Bloomberg organization. He's been on stage everywhere. He is a master communicator and he really breaks down how to be a better communicator, which is really at the end of the day, what we're trying to do here. It's a people business we're in. We need to be able to communicate. We need to be able to be very, very effective at that particular skill. Uh, and his name is Chuck Garcia. He is the former head of global marketing at Bloomberg. He's the founder of Climb Leadership International and coaches executives on leadership development, public speaking, and emotional intelligence with his Empathetic Leadership Institute. He's a professional speaker and has given keynotes in over 20 different countries. He's an Amazon best-selling author of A Climb to the Top and a podcast host of a popular show of the same name. He also teaches leadership communication at Columbia University's Graduate School of Engineering. Guys, he is just a master communicator and he really, really uh, spills the goods in this episode. And he's very, very um, thorough and very, very, very informative. And uh, he's just a great speaker. So it's fun to listen to him on top of of it all, right? He knows how to speak. So guys, get ready for a great one. I give you Chuck Garcia. Hey, Chuck, thank you for being here on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you doing this and I'm excited to have this conversation. Mike, it is a pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. 
Absolutely. Wouldn't have missed it. Uh, we have some common friends who said, you really need to get Chuck on your show. He's a dynamic speaker. He's a great guy and he really knows his stuff. And so, you know, you can't beat great recommendations from great people. So uh, I, again, I'm happy to have you here and I can't wait to dive into your story and, and, and everything in your world. Uh, but before we do, let's make sure that we give people a little bit of context. If they don't know who you are and are not familiar with you, a little bit about where you come from, what your background looks like, and and maybe how you've gotten to to do what you do now? What, what led up to that? Well, first, let me state as toward what I do. I think it's the only way that I can express it is to who I am. And who I am is the luckiest man on earth. I am so blessed to have been raised by mom and dad and brothers who loved me and I loved them back. And it ultimately evolved into a life that I am just so lucky to lead. Professionally, I am a former Wall Street streeter. I spent 25 years in and around the Wall Street area, the majority of which under the tutelage of a guy named Mike Bloomberg. And for those who may not know him, he was a presidential candidate. He was the mayor of New York for three terms. He was my boss for 14 years. And I learned more from him in one week under his tutelage than I did in four years of college. No offense to Syracuse University, but he was a better teacher. So after all of those years, ultimately, uh, an event of 9-11, in which I was scheduled to speak on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center while I was at Bloomberg. Fortunately, I was not in the building at the time of the collapse. But the reason I say that it gave impetus to a career change I never could have expected. We can get into that a bit later if you'd like to go there, but it ultimately led to some introspection. And eight years ago, after many years on Wall Street, I formed my own company called Climb Leadership International. I am an executive coach to many financial institutions. I'm a professional speaker, and I'm on faculty at Columbia University Graduate School of Engineering, where I teach two things, public speaking and emotional intelligence. And then on a more personal level, I've had the honor and privilege of raising four children. So I give a lot of credit to my wife for helping me keep it all together in spite of all the career climbing and the global travel that just lends credence to the fact that I am just one blessed individual and I am delighted to be on this show, Mike. <laughs> well, thank you. Wow, that's a lot of, of uh, experience and a lot of life that you just packed into a couple of minutes. Let me ask you, what does uh, what, what did you do for Mr. Bloomberg? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe give us a sense of what it's like to to be in his circle for a week or a month? Like, what, what does that sort of look like? Yeah, you bet. Well, as toward, um, just for context, I was, Bloomberg now is a, an organization that has 11 billion in revenues and 20,000 employees. I was employee 190. So it's a real luxury when you join a company, no one ever heard of it. Everyone said, what are you crazy? You're going to join this company? And what I did originally, I'm bilingual. My parents are Brazilian. So I grew up in in a bilingual home, bicultural. My father was a professor of linguistics at the United States Military Academy in West Point. So I grew up very, not only bilingual, I grew up in a civilian home with a collegiate father, but in a military reservation where you learn the discipline that comes with being an army officer. So all my life, I was surrounded by either a guy who's really good at linguistics and communication or army soldiers who teach you a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't learn if you didn't live on a military base. Mm -hmm. 
Because of that, I was fortunate and then I joined Bloomberg to become a salesman where I was head of Latin American sales for many years. So in that organization, my mission was to build a team and to fly. And I did for the next seven years all over Latin America, from Mexico to Argentina and everywhere in, bet in between selling what is called the Bloomberg Services. I turned down seven years later an opportunity to move to Sao Paulo, Brazil to run Latin American operation, which was the best no I ever said, because from that, Mike Bloomberg said to me, good, you're not going to go. Congratulations. You're now our public spokesman. And I became the public spokesman of the company, which was director of strategic marketing for the entire world. So I spent the next seven years in Bloomberg as we were building these businesses all over the world as the spokesman for the company. My job was to get on stage in any venue anywhere in the world where the financial community came to together and they wanted to hear from the successful organizations and how blessed I was to represent that organization that put me on stage and what ultimately it came to do, it whether I knew it or not, it was helping me form what was the basis of my second career. As to your second question, what is it like to be under or in the gravity of a colossal bazillionaire? Well, first, let me state that while people think about him in the organization, I at least want to state he is the smartest, most generous man I've ever known. He has done more for charitable causes. He has done more for employees in the company that you will never read about. Illnesses, parents are sick, the, the generosity that he has expanded and espouses toward people in his company is beyond anything I thought possible. The bigger question, what do you learn from him? I can illustrate that in a story where in the first couple of weeks when I was working with him, I, I did something and I made a mistake. And I said, I kind of laughed and I said, Mike, I'm really sorry I screwed it up. And he took a pause. He looked right at me and he said, Garcia, if you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard enough. So get out there and screw it up. When you receive that kind of message, yeah. the liberty and the independence and the agency that you've just been handed is completely contrary to everything I thought about in my conventional education where you were only measured by what you got right and you were never encouraged to examine what you got wrong. Yeah. That is the power of the culture of that organization and everything that I have done subsequent to that, that conversation is in my head all the time. So that's amazing. It's just, it's amazing. You know, I thought like in my head, like to be funny at the end, I say, so you really haven't done anything so far <laughs> in your life. But um, obviously you have, it's hard to even almost comprehend being in that world. Like you said, you know, around near the, the gravitational pull of somebody like that. Um, and, and it's interesting too. So you think he would have made a good president. Is that what you're, what you're saying? You think he could have done that well. I, what I, what I'm certain of, I never, I could never be a good president. What, what I hope I could do was to advise presidents how to be better communicators. Yeah. And that's cool too. Just the, the, the small little aside here that, that he's a, you know, a good person. He's done some stuff no one will ever hear about. Right. You know, I think sometimes the Michael Bloomberg's of the world uh, get put in this category of this like 
this 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 monster that just consumes and dominates and grows and makes money but has no feelings and just cares about nothing but the bottom line it's nice to hear uh, stories about a guy who who doesn't have to do certain things maybe and but he has the means to and he does so that's that's really really cool well mike i think it pains me more than anything else he is a capitalist through and through he came from very modest beginnings Yet what people don't realize and those that don't look into the depth of what he's actually created, it's very easy to criticize somebody who's worth billions of dollars, but it's a real ignorant thing to do that without recognizing what it is you're actually criticizing. And because one has earned money the old-fashioned way, he earned it and he created 20,000 jobs. And what so many people do in their critique is what they're looking at is, oh, I can't believe he must have done something crooked. Well, that's not the case at all. What he has done was created an industry and careers and happiness and prosperity and success. And to many of those who have done like what he has done, I'm real blessed for that. Because we learn the lessons of a man who stands on integrity. And if he makes several billion along the way, well, isn't that the American dream? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Couldn't agree more. And I think my audience is, is probably, by and large, kind of of, of that opinion. And, and you know, they're, they're folks that are building businesses. They're trying to create jobs and, and create some generational wealth and do some things for themselves. But uh, also, we're solving problems, right? As real estate investors, oftentimes, we're, we're taking something really, really bad and, and maybe doesn't have the value it should. And we create value and create, you know, better better communities. Right. So I, I definitely hear all that. We, we talked a little bit before uh, we jumped on here live, and you had mentioned... And I think a big part of your career and a big part of your experience is, like you said, communication. You're very passionate about communication. Uh, I'm just in your book, uh, A Climb to the Top, uh, Communication and Leadership Tactics to Take Your Career to New Heights. Uh, one of the things that I, I took from that is, um, is you say, career success is determined 5% by your academic credentials, 15% by your professional experiences. by your natural ability and 65% by your communication skills. And I I couldn't agree more. And I would like you to maybe expand on that and talk about that for a minute. Uh, But I, you know, it's something I have children too. I've raised uh, some great kids and I've always tried to uh, impress and impart upon them that communication is so universal. It's not just a business skill. It's not just a public speaking skill. It's, it's, it's relationships. It's you have to be able to communicate effectively and in a way that doesn't make the other person feel bad or or you're not being aggressive or maybe you want to be aggressive. Like you have to have that skill. And I'd love to get some more insight. You've been all over the world. You've spoken all over the world. Uh, I'm sure that you've needed to be persuasive and charming and, and informative to a number of different cultures. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that communication skill? Yeah, well, first, I, I want to, I think the best way to start it is my own observations when I didn't quite understand what it all meant. And I state that because many, many of our listeners, I'm sure, and I, I'm one of them, I was in a very traditional conventional educational model where I went to school and I was in what is known as the cram exam regurgitate model. And it's probably what many did is, and and the definition of success is the individual who was first in the class or second in the class, he or she is the smartest person, path to prosperity and success is rooted in the person who does that well. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. 
So at Syracuse University, where I was a finance major, I, I was in that world and I didn't know any different. So to me, and this is what you'd do, but here's the interesting market part, Mike, and here's where it began to change. I got to Wall Street and the company before I was at Bloomberg, I sat back sometimes and I just shut up and I watched. I said, who's who's who, who's everyone looking up to here? Who are the people that are walking around? I worked at a big bank and and you knew who were the who were like the influencers were before we even had that word. And as I sat back and I looked at them, what is it about that individual? And what I came to find out. That individual did not go to Harvard. That individual probably and likely, I came to find out, was not the highest GPA. They were not the valedictorian. But what was it about them that people were gravitating to and why were they ascending the career ladder? And then it hit me. I said, oh, my God. I looked back at my education and I thought about all those countless nights where I studied and I crammed and I examined. And then I'm on Wall Street. No one's asking me about any test I'm ever going to take. I'm not cramming. I have to be good at what I do. But the people who are ascending that career ladder, it has nothing to do with what I thought were the conventions of what we were told you need to succeed. So I said, huh. And then it hit me. What is it? They're communicating powerfully. They have a presence. They are connecting with people in ways that are different. They're dynamic speakers. People come to them and they make them feel like they're the only individual in the room. They seem to be emotionally aware of themselves and they're really good at reading a room. So it was early on in my career and I looked at that and said, wow, this is not what I was sold. I was told something different and I'm looking around and it's like, huh, okay, well, does this give impetus to who I want to be? Because I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I never was. I was a good student, but I was nothing like the brainiacs that were way ahead of me. So what did I figure out? Well, I'm going to have to outsmart them in the only way I know how. I began to emulate. I didn't look or dress like those individuals that I noticed. Didn't have to be. They have been invented. So what do I have to do? I got to be good enough at what I do, which is good. You want a high standard. But now I have to invent myself in such a way that I want to be like those guys. Not necessarily act like them, but I want to be able to adopt the attributes that other people are so admiring in them That's what I wanted to aspire to. And it had nothing to do with raw intelligence, everything to do with presence, how I show up formally, how I show up informally, and the perceptions that people would have about me if I'm going to get on this path to to climb to the top. So, Mike, it was very much rooted in the commitment I made to my own development, and I'm not separating personal from professional. I used to early on pre-internet when we actually used to have a separation of our lives. But as our lives have evolved, what I came to find out that communication skills are not only universal and cutting across multiple industries. As I learned to become a more compelling communicator, I was finding what was working well on stage was working well at home. And what worked well with my colleagues worked well with my children. 
that's when the formula really hit me. It's like, oh man, finally, I figure this out. I can be as effective in two different lives with one modality. That's learning to become a great communicator, irrespective of time, place, or people. One skill, scalable in two lives. Get my drift? Yeah, that's a, that is actually a cool, cool way of looking at it because I do think that people think what works at, at work or in my business is different than what will work at home and vice versa. And, and I know, listen, I, the only choice we have in a format that's limited uh, is to, we have to, and I hate to do this because you're, you're so um, well-versed in this, that it's sort of a shame sometimes to boil it down to key concepts, but we're, we're sort of constricted by time. Yep. What are some of the key concepts or the key things that you learned about being a great communicator? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Well, first, let, let me state that I did have the good advantage when I was at Syracuse. Um, you, to graduate from college, you need 20 courses. There was one course that had more impact on me than the other 19 combined. And it happened just serendipitously. I needed to, to find an elective when I was registering for class my sophomore year. Didn't, didn't know exactly. I could have taken anthropology, basket weaving, wine appreciation, whatever. It didn't matter. I stumbled into a course called the Art and Science of Debate. And I thought about that. I was like, huh, I'd never debated in high school. I never acted. And I never did anything like that. I never considered communication as something I was actually needed to study. And I went into that class and I was, there were 10 people, there were nine pre-law guys all going to Harvard, Yale, and Columbia Law School and the idiot me. And I said, oh my God, I am out of my element. But it was the best course I ever took because the professor who was very practical and he, he was a debater in college started to lay down some pretty fundamental rules of how to be a persuasive individual. And he recommended a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People that was written in 1936 by Dale Carnegie. And I read that book and I said, oh my God, the gates of heaven have just opened up. I, I get this. This is speaking to me. So when I was at Bloomberg and it was pretty clear that I was a good communicator, I was good on stage. In fact, it was it gave impetus to a full-time job that, that there was no job description for it. I was just doing it well. So all of a sudden, like, what the hell? You got a full-time job. And it was almost like, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out, but head out to the world, get out there and speak. So what happened, Mike, is as I was on stage, I, no one ever taught me this. This wasn't debating, but I was on a stage and I had to figure out how do I connect to hundreds of people at the same time? How do I make someone in the audience feel like I'm speaking to them? There was some innate ability, but most of it was trial and error. As I stood on a stage and I was trying different techniques, I started to vary my pitch. I started to pause, allowing them room to catch up. I started moving closer to the lip of the stage. I got rid of the podiums and the rostrums that people stand behind. I wanted to minimize the distance. And what I found is the more that I created an intimate atmosphere, even though it may have been 500 people, people were beginning to feel like I was now connecting with them on a personal level. I wasn't the oracle behind a pedestal preaching to a, to a choir. I was a guy on stage trying to establish 
what I was really doing was trying to move them to my company's cause. And I saw all these other speakers just getting up there tactically, blah, 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 talking all about themselves. I took the complete opposite. I said, I'm going to talk about their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations. I'm barely going to give my bio because they don't give a damn about me. But I very much give a damn about them because I need them to buy what I'm selling. So how am I going to do it? As I was now finding my game, when I left the Wall Street world and I decided I needed to write this book, I wrote it in the framework of what's called the 10 Commandments of Great Communicators. I thought about what made me an effective public speaker, and I'll boil down just a few. The very first chapter is called the primacy recency effect. And it's the observation that when people speak, they remember the first thing and the last thing that you say. They don't remember much in between, but they will never forget how you make them feel. Bam, first commandment, got it. Open big, open memorable. Most people open up blah, 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 and just boring boilerplate stuff. Not going to do that. Anything I open up is going to be a story from like somewhere on Mars, and then I'm going to bring it home and hit them with my main point. Second, power of emotional appeal. It's not sufficient to only be in the mind and try to bombard people with logic and reason. What people recognize and what they gravitate to are stories of struggle and challenge. So drop all the stats, forget all the fancy graphs and talk, show vulnerability and talk about these are the areas I screwed up. And I hope you don't make the same mistake. And I'm here to help you to ensure that you don't. And then lastly, the most powerful element, Mike, and I had no idea how important it would become, but I devoted an entire chapter called The Power of the pause. Because what I was finding on Wall Street, people were speaking a mile a minute. And the ability to comprehend sentences that are coming out at machine gun rate, everybody's shaking their head, you know, and you make it look like like they're getting you. Yeah. They're not. So just by teaching people or even myself, by pausing, You're showing consideration to the listener and giving him or her time to catch up, to absorb the message like a good comedian. Give him a setup, pause for dramatic effect, then hit him with the punchline. And if you do that effectively, that's what they remember. So those were just three chapters that I further examined and really put under a microscope to help people understand, not unlike any other profession, here are rules, discipline, and guidelines. We think about them to become an engineer, a doctor, there's protocols. Well, what I tried to do, Mike, is to raise the specter that communication has a discipline and a framework like any other profession. And just because one can speak doesn't mean one is a good speaker. And I really hope when I, when I wrote my book, I created the space and bridged the gap from speaker to professional speaker. Yeah. And the book is, is the bridge that will help one become that. I know that you, uh, you, we, we talked about this, I think, before we hopped on too. 
uh, is that you teach, well, let's define first emotional, uh, uh, emotional intelligence and let's, how do you, and what do you teach the engineering students that you, that you talk to? Why, first of all, why is it important for them? Well, first of all, what does it mean? And then why is it important for them? Yeah, let's first get in, into what it means. Um, let me first explain that what this is born out of, at least what, what raised the consciousness, is I've worked on a couple of succession plans in very large companies. And what that means is I stand between the board of directors and the current CEO who has communicated he or she is going to retire, and I help them to formulate what are the characteristics that we want in the search for the next CEO. And it was a fascinating study, and this is my own study, so I'm not saying this is what the world thinks, but this is my opinion. And God knows it worked in, in what I was doing. And it was interesting in one of the projects where they found out what are the three characteristics that this is a particular company, very large company, big technology company. What do they want in the next CEO? And they, 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 they said three attributes. We want our next CEO to be calm under the weight of enormous expectations. They call that grace under fire. We want our next CEO to be very good at resolving conflicts because what we find is in the C-suite, people spend too much time arguing and who is resolving the conflict and being held accountable for the decisions. And here was the third one, like the interesting one. It was about style. We want our leader to exhibit a more empathetic, less commanding control, more collaborative connection and an empathetic style. That is giving birth to this concept called emotional intelligence. And at my Columbia class, I label it redefine what it means to be smart. What my Columbia engineering students don't know because they can't is for those that want to climb to the top because they're too young to realize that you may be skillful but it is the loneliest job anyone would ever want. And every CEO will admit that. But the point that I'm making is to become the CEO of a large company, you will often have to work very hard not to get crushed under the weight of enormous expectations and pressures. Because it's those expectations and pressures that cause us or any or any individual to behave in ways that they later regret. They get upset, they get stressed, they get anxious. Okay, that's all good and that's part of the human condition, but that's not what the followers of that leader want to see. They want to see calm and composed. Emotional intelligence then addresses the social, the personal, the the survival dimension of the emotions of an individual when they are going about their day. So emotional intelligence helps one to understand how to be self-aware. What is the impact I have on others and is my behavior being manifested in a way that is good for everyone in the room? The second part of it, how does one learn to be more socially aware, which really means reading the room, reading the cues, understanding what's right in front of you, because I've worked with a lot of people that are completely oblivious to what's in front of them. That's not the mark of a good leader. So emotional intelligence then is really the, a quotient, a social science that has been juxtaposed to IQ. So to my Columbia engineers, they're brilliant. And they come to school from the cram exam regurgitate model. My point to them is there is a place for that. And you will likely go on to be an extraordinary engineer. But I know many of you and your ambitions will want to climb to the top. 
Here is what I am certain will happen. The higher you climb in an organization, the less engineering you're actually going to do. The challenge, though, is the job description midway up the mountain is going to significantly change, and you are going to feel ill-equipped and unprepared. It's called the paradox of success. The skills that got you halfway are not the skills that get you all the way, because the higher you go, you will be expected to do almost zero engineering. Well, what are you doing? You're leading, you're communicating, you're presenting, you're hiring, you're firing. Think about all those things. And if you look at Sundar Pichai at Google, he's a CEO. He was a metallurgical engineer. I asked them, how much engineering do you think Pichai does on any given day? And they come back and they say zero. And I said, does that surprise you? Well, sure it is because he's an engineer. No, he's not an engineer. Well, maybe he still is. His job description doesn't talk about engineering. Yeah. So- Really, Mike, I feel like my mission is to bring the hard truth about soft skills to those rooted in a conventional education model, the recognition that as you climb the career ladder, your left brain is your technical skills, and it's important to have them. What conventional education is doing is often dismisses the right side of the brain as irrelevant. But this is communication, emotional intelligence, also your risk taker. This lives on the right side. So I feel like so much of what I do is trying to help raise awareness of the importance of the balance and look at the synchronicity, left brain, right brain, hard skills, hard skills, soft skills. So there's an evolution that we have then that is very much the balance, right hand, left hand, right leg, left leg, hard. So, so look at the way that the human body is designed. Careers are modeling the same, yet the conventional education model causes us to be imbalanced. Yeah, I like clear? that. It's super clear. You know, somebody, I, I was in the automotive industry for uh, a number of years, uh, like 18, 20 years. And I, I saw it time and time again it play out exactly what you're talking about. They would take the best engineer in the engineering department and promote him or her to engineering manager. And then they would subsequently fail or struggle or really not be great, right? It's because that they they don't have that skill set. That's not they're not they're not good managers, leaders, communicators necessarily just because they're a great engineer. And the interesting thing that I was thinking as you were as you were explaining that is it just to kind of dial it back to my listeners who people are listening right now. And the way you explained it is different than the way I explain it, but it's it's the same concept. The paradox paradox of success is we start a company as a as a solo operator, and 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 we're doing everything in the company. Like for for real estate investors, we're doing marketing, we're finding opportunities, we're we're negotiating the sale, we're talking to contractors, we're negotiating the sale when we when we sell it at the end of the deal. And and then as you build your company and you start bringing people in and hiring people, you less and less are you doing the things that got you to the point where you could start hiring and you did have some success. And more and more are you just facilitating, communicating, leading, inspiring, and those kind of things. And it's a different skill set. And if you don't adapt and if you don't have that that other skill set, 
you'll be doomed to either failing or having to scale back to where you kind of did everything because that's the only way you can get anything done because you're not, you don't have that skill set. So it's very applicable and it's very, very universal thing that we see all the time in our industry. So that's, that's and, awesome. And also not just in your industry, but you just take, to take, take a salesman, for instance. Salespeople who are really good are very tactical in their way. And companies do the same thing. Wow, he's really good. He showed a lot of success in sales. Make him a salesman. And they completely bomb. Because people hate working with them. And yeah. it's not that they're bad people, but they have a superpower. And yep. the superpower is not always applicable, particularly in leadership, where that person who is following you can quit any time. And they don't quit the company. They quit you. Yeah. And yeah. so because of that, there's a certain power now that the generation coming up recognizes, I don't have to put up with this jerk. I'll, I'll just do something else. Yep. But I think to to your real estate investors or your real estate um, clients, the people in your community, I think there's a real important message here that I have gone and I've 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 owned an apartment, I own my home, I had a home built. And what I found is the really good people in the real estate business are very good listeners. They establish an emotional connection. They make you feel like the home you're about to purchase, that their happiness and success is as much at stake as yours. And what I find is those that are very emotionally invested in their client, that don't do all the talking, but listen to the needs of them and work in a way that they feel it's a more of a partnered approach. And I've seen individuals do that. Absolute magic. Yeah. I've also seen the opposite, where you're feeling that they're just, you know, they just want me to sign on the bottom line and they're giving me tactics yeah. to do it by Thursday at six or the house is gone. I get it. I appreciate that. But I think, and, and, and a shout out to all of the real estate, the people in the real estate business, you're in the people business. It just happens to be that you're, you're, you're working real estate. These are people's lives. Yeah. And it matters to them. So thank you to all those that do it well. You're doing a good job. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you. There's a lot of good. Uh, I, it would be it would be terrible if we didn't mention this because I think it's an incredibly interesting. Uh, um, uh, your book, uh, A Climb to the Top, is the the metaphor is is climbing a mountain, and right. and to that to that end, you not only have climbed several mountains, but as we discussed prior to hopping on here live, you actually became a mountaineer. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of questions. Yeah. Number one, why do you climb these mountains? Number two, <laughs> why did you go to the, I'm not going to call it extreme. I don't know, but why did you go to the point that you actually became a mountaineer? Yeah. Well, it, it was driven by, by a series of unfortunate events. Uh, as a public speaker, I was scheduled to speak in the world trade center on nine 11. And I was on the dead list for several hours. I was on my way to the building. I never, I didn't make it into the building, but many of my friends did. And many of my Bloomberg colleagues died. And, and I attended about 16 funerals from there. That event, Mike gave me pause. And because I was presumably dead until proven otherwise, it really caused a moment of self-reflection. And I thought about how blessed I am not to have been in the building at the time. But I also thought about what am I going to do about this? I can't let this pass. And I recognized that while I can't change the world, I can't bring that day back. There's one thing I can change, and that's me. So how am I going to change? What can I do to make myself a better person? 
And I thought that I was a bad person. I just thought this is a great opportunity for self-examination because why am I alive? I didn't sit around mired in my survivor like that, but I think it did give me the opportunity to reflect, hmm, there's something else out there. I don't know what it is. I read a book called Into Thin Air by a guy named John Krakauer, and it was just before 9-11, and it, w- it recounted the disaster on Mount Everest in 1996 where several people died. And as I read that, instead of making me not want to be a mountaineer, I saw myself in that book. I said, oh my God, I loved, I was enthralled by the process of what they were describing about climbing the mountain and how hard it was. And I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I don't know what it's like to be a mountaineer, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to try. And exactly one year later on the anniversary of 9-11, it was just in that moment, I said, I don't know where this is going to lead me. I don't even know what questions I'm asking myself, but I'm feeling drawn that I need to do something out of my comfort zone. I'm no longer going to do something that comes easy to me. And I'm going to dedicate my, my, the rest of my life to doing things I've never done before. So having dedicated myself, so what, what I said is I'm going to do, since I like winter sports, let me try this. And I went out to Mount Rainier in the Cascade Mountains. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I explained to the mountain climbing company who guides mere mortals like me, and I, I'm a distance runner. I always have been. So I've always been in really good shape. I explained to them I've not done it before. I got a crash course training in rock climbing at a place near my home. And on 9-11, exactly one year later, I stood on the summit of Mount Rainier. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And it was the best thing I'd ever done. I was freaking exhausted. A year later, and, and it, it really helped me understand, oh my God, I can actually do something that's damn hard. I could have stayed in New York and just read a book but no, I'm not going to do that. Mike, the thrill that I had, oh my God, I've accomplished something. I, I've, I have no idea what I'm doing, but what I know is if I do it again, I will suck a little less. So a year later, I went to Mount Kilimanjaro and stood on that summit. And I said, this is awesome. And I know that if I climb another mountain, I'm going to suck a little less and <laughs> climb the Matterhorn. And so now a pattern began and I'm climbing mountains and then it hit me like a lightning bolt, like Boom. Oh my God. This thing I've just done. This is like a career. It started. I had no idea what I was doing. I simply took a step at a time because what other choice do you have? But the most important part, Mike, the metaphor that really hit me, which is why I wrote the book and titled it that way. I didn't do it alone. I had a guide I had people to help me. The generosity that was extended to help me get to that summit, absolutely priceless. That then, this is it. I'm going to leave the Wall Street world. I'm going to form. I'm going to be a mountain guide, not on the mountains. Well, I continue to climb mountains. And thus, the metaphor of career climbing, my mountain climbing feels like a career climbing. So then it just became natural call my company Climb Leadership, call the book a climb to the top. The difference is the book is the toolkit. On a mountain climb, it's on my back. It's in my hand called an ice axe. On the land mountain, it's called 10 Commandments of Great Communicators. It's the toolkit. And if you use it correctly and take a step at a time and have a good guide, climb to the top. So it all came together. Yeah. (laughs) 
wasn't as seamless when I started this concept, but <laughs> now it's a book, a radio show, television, you know, we're breaking into TV as well. So we're trying all in the metaphor of helping people to say yes to the thing that scares you the most. Stop worrying about what everyone else has to say and get out there and climb it. And if you fall down, we are here to help get back up and keep climbing. I love, I, I love that metaphor. And, and you, you just mentioned, we didn't talk about it, but your podcast, A Climb to the Top, you know, podcast of the same name. Uh, I assume you're, where is the best place to get the book if people are interested and want to go purchase that? Is it Amazon? Is it your website? Well, certainly Amazon. You can always go to Amazon and just say Chuck Garcia or A Climb to the Top. My website is, is chuckgarcia.com. There's a book tab and it's Amazon, BN and a bunch of other stores. But the main thing is, is it's audiobook and it's, it's a book, but we're grateful. It became a bestseller in multiple categories. If for no other reason, it's not just about communication. It's not just about leadership. It's very much about the evolution of your social skills, body language. There's so much more that I came to learn. It's 25 years of wisdom that is really boiled down to a framework of 10 commandments, 10, 10 tools in the kit. Yeah. An unbelievable start to your career. Uh, just a horribly tragic uh, middle portion there with obviously 9-11. I mean, that's so incredible that just the fact that you you were supposed to be in the building and you were not yet and presumed dead. I mean, it's just uh, that that's a super, uh, you know, it's a major, uh, you know, stake in the ground, so to speak, for for your life. And, and you made some changes from that point. Right. And you explain yourself and you describe yourself as the luckiest man on earth, which is, you know, I I think that should be the goal of everybody, no matter what you're doing. You should Agreed. you should strive to feel that way. Um, the the wisdom and the history and the experience behind what you're you're teaching and what you what you you know uh, give back to people is clear to me. Uh, guys, go go get the book. I mean, it, you absolutely have to get this book. A climb to the top. Go to a, go to his website. Go to Amazon. But get it uh, if you're into audio. You said there's an audio no, version of the book. Um, so so I know a lot of my listeners are into listening to the book. Books while they're while they're working or driving or whatever. So get that, guys. Listen to the podcast. A climb to the top. It's the same name, uh, Chuck. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all of the stories and, and the great advice that you've given us in the in the time frame that we have. I mean, there there's guests like you that I, I could sit here and talk for three hours and we would never that. run out of things to cover because you yeah. have so much to say. So I appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for doing this. It, it's exciting to have you on and hopefully in the future we can have you back. Well, Mike, it's been a real pleasure. Let me first express my gratitude to you for your time. What you do is a wonderful thing to the people in your community. It's a pleasure to connect with you. You're under good tutelage with Mike. How lucky you are, how lucky I am to be able to do this and to have this mechanism to do it. So thank you. Keep putting out your great work in the world. I'm, I'm really honored to have been on your podcast and I look forward to another collaboration. Great. I feel the same way. Thank you very much and have a good rest of your year, sir. Thank you very much. All right. I had a lot of fun in that interview. Chuck's a good guy. My goodness. Worked for Bloomberg, uh, traveled the world, been on stage in multiple countries and all the communication. He's just such a expert in his in his field and, and such a wealth of knowledge that I just had to have him on the show uh, to to share that with you guys. Because at the end of the day, he said it, right? It's a, We're in a people business. It's about communication. And this is not just business communication. It's business. It's personal. It's everything. We have to talk to sellers, right? He touched on that a little bit. We talk to investors, like communication is everything. Then we eventually get big enough where we hire and we have to be able to communicate to the people that we bring on our team. So 
communication over you know lays over the entire entire thing and and having a guy uh like chuck garcia on to talk to us about that and to share with us his insights and his experiences is absolutely invaluable so i hope you guys understand how important that was i had a great time like i said i i love love loved having him on and uh and i just hope to get him back in the future to to share a little more so guys but it all starts with with you it all starts with action right communication becoming better at it all of that is absolutely critical but nothing happens while you're sitting on your couch doing nothing right chuck got off the couch and went and climbed mountains just to 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 have that experience and to actually get out there and do something that scared him if you're scared of starting your business that's exactly what you need to do go out there and start it get started now get going become a great communicator succeed that's the formula all right guys until next time